Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced and edited by The Milk Mob and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? All right. So first, you're going to talk about diabetes and breastfeeding. Right. So um, Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine has recently come out with a new clinical protocol, number 27, which is um, about breastfeeding an infant or young child with insulin-dependent diabetes. And I um, had mentioned this to, I can't remember who, someone recently, and they were just like, wow, that's got to be such an unusual thing. Why would you need a protocol for that? And, you know, I thought, sure, this isn't the most common thing that we encounter, but I think that it's a great um, protocol that they've come out with. And I hope that more people who do take care of children diagnosed with diabetes while they're still breastfeeding will become aware of this protocol. Yeah, and I and I would say after years of um, receiving calls from families um, whose kids have type 1 diabetes and who, of course, are toddlers who are nursing all the time and they couldn't measure how much the babies were taking, the endocrinologist would say, would you please just stop breastfeeding? This is messing up the blood sugars. And it was so, I was like so excited to see this protocol because now I feel like, okay, we can share this with endocrinologists to understand that we don't need to be measuring every single thing, that it makes sense. We can predict pretty much how much babies are taking when they are nursing. And, and we know the calories of breast milk. So it's really not like a black, our breasts are not a black box. <laughs> exactly. Right? Right. There are tools that we can use to figure it out and encouraging these families and avoiding making them feel guilty because parents of um, children with diabetes already really struggle and often feel guilty if they don't have um, as good of glycemic control um, as you know they they want them to have and it's really hard just because of the natural feeding um, rhythms of young children you know it's they don't eat three large meals a day they have more erratic patterns and so right um, we still want to get those babies the nutritional benefits um, of breast milk there's also one section in this um, protocol that is relevant to all of our listeners that has to do with thinking about how much um, breast milk babies take. And so I thought for that reason also, it'd be great to go over. Sure. Go for it. So um, the um, authors, Diana Miller et al. um, state that the goal of the protocol is to provide guidance for the care of breastfeeding infants um, and young children with insulin dependent diabetes and their families. It describes a few different things, the basis of insulin dosing for carbohydrate intake for breastfeeding infants, and the basis of assessing the amount of carbohydrate for expressed breast milk. It talks about insulin dosing in infants who have the style of small volume frequent feedings, um, who don't necessarily necessarily have those sort of large meals throughout the day. Um, Talks about goals and methods for glycemic control in breastfeeding infants and young children with diabetes and guidance on counseling parents and supporting them to continue breastfeeding. Um, 
the incidence of type 1 diabetes is increasing, and about 4% of patients um, are diagnosed when they're younger than two years old, according to one Finnish study. Um, this protocol points out that 100 milliliters of breast milk contains approximately seven grams of carbohydrate. Um, and this is fairly um, similar. The lactose content of formula is roughly equivalent to that of breast milk. However, um, formula does have less fat than breast milk, about 10 grams per liter less, and fat modulates the absorption of the absorption rate of glucose into the bloodstream. And this may explain why infants who are consuming breast milk have a more steady and mild postprandial um, glycemic variability than infants consuming formula. That's interesting. Um, the part of the study that I thought was worth reminding all of our listeners about has to do with just the volume of breast milk produced in 24 hours um, by your average mom. And it's about 740 milliliters, which is just over 24 ounces per day. And I have, for a long time, when I'm trying to explain to people, well, you know, like, how much should my baby eat? This is a really common question that you get, you know, right from birth, moms are asking, well, how much is the baby supposed to get? Um, whether they're eating at the breast or whether they're getting express milk or whether we're supplementing with breast milk or formula, parents always want to know how much the baby gets. And I think that one of the things that I always um, try to teach the residents is this very simple idea that an average, yes, some babies take 20 ounces a day and some babies take 30 ounces a day. But if you use this average of 24, it's really easy to think about if you divide up based on how many hours it's been since the last feeding, the baby takes about that many ounces. And so as babies go from eating, you know, 10 times a day to eating only six times a day. If they're, if it's two hours between feedings, they take about two ounces. And if it's six hours between feedings, they take about six ounces. Now, this is an approximation, right? Yeah, but I think it's accurate. Yeah. And so what they said in this um, document is basically we can figure out how much mo milk a mom is producing, or we can guess starting that it's around the 740 milliliters a day. And we can say, this baby eats eight times a day. So let's divide that volume by eight and figure out approximately what the volume is of each feed and the, then use that um, carbohydrate per liter um, to figure out the amount of carbohydrates that the baby is getting. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think is really interesting that I think is really a common misconception that I encounter is people assume that as babies get bigger, they drink more and more milk. And... This reflects that babies from about one to 12 months of life actually get close to the same number of ounces per day. And that makes sense because babies grow more slowly as they get closer to their first and second birthdays. Um, and right. so moms right. need to know, you don't have to make more and more and more milk as your baby grows. And right. that's often a source of stress as moms are going to work and they're worried about pumping. Right. I tell, I tell families that they reach their peak milk intake at around six weeks. And then after that, they just stay the same, especially for those moms with low supplies who are working really hard to increase that they just look at me like, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to keep trying to climb this mountain and chase mm -hmm. this, you know, this mountain that's growing into the clouds. And it's like, no, 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 you're at the peak. You're doing well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that really is a, something that people don't know. The other question, and I wonder what you think about this, is I... I don't really know, and maybe there's great literature that I haven't been exposed to yet, you know, 
in that between that day five when moms start having higher volumes of milk and when we say it's six weeks when they're maybe at their their peak milk like how and how much variability is there between moms and how fast does it go up because I certainly see infants that are two weeks old or four weeks old who you know the amount of milk that they're getting is still pretty small relative to the 24 ounces and they're growing mm-hmm. um, and and then I see these other babies sometimes they're formula fed babies that are getting you know three ounces every or two ounces every two hours from day two of life and so it's just it's hard for me to answer the question when moms are struggling with milk supply and their baby is three weeks old you know, how much are they supposed to be getting? How much should I supplement? And I've always compensated for this, you know, I don't know, by just let's look at what the baby's weight is doing in one or two days and then we'll adjust accordingly. Well, and I also don't like, you know, there are all these calculators out there like this is how much a baby should be taking at this age, at this weight. And I hate those so much because we don't account for variability in people's genetics and their mm-hmm. appetite and how much they take at one time and their frequency of feeding. And, um, so I don't like people to look at a chart and say this is how much your baby should be taking because what we really ultimately want to do is we want to have the baby drive the whole thing. And yes, there are some babies who fail that test, who don't drive it, and they just sleep and they would probably die just being asleep. Yeah. But your average baby tells you when they're hungry and when they're not hungry. And we want moms, we want families to use those cues as opposed to a chart or as opposed to time at the breast. Um and so when someone asks me at three weeks, how much am my baby taking? I say, enough that your baby is satisfied and your baby looks good on the growth curve. That's all I say. And that's yeah. why I don't like to do pre and post feed weights willy nilly because I look at the baby's, you know, overall weight and I don't want to measure one little feeding. I want to just see how they're doing over the course of time. So, right. We don't want them to. Yeah. Use, no, for sure. Yeah, and that goes yeah. back to the point they made in the study, which is, you know, often the um, morning feeds are a little bit bigger than the evening feeds, which mm-hmm. um, you and I know. Um, and I think, you know, what you said is absolutely true about not wanting to tell people. It's not just the moms. It's the doctors I'm training. They mm. love numbers. Yeah. And so I struggle. And, and it's hard. You know, families often say to me, well, after I breastfed, I gave my baby the bottle and they took it. So I knew they were still hungry. Mm-hmm. And it's not always true, right? Like you turn the bottle upside down, they're like, glug, glug, glug. Right, um, right. And so not every, it's not everybody has learned those, you know, cues. It's, it's a matter of taking the time to teach families. It's hard work. It is. And sometimes it's, you know, like I've had families who have huge babies and they feel like the babies always, always want more and they're nursing and they don't want to supplement. And they march into my office every one to two weeks and they just do a weight check and say, okay, I know my baby's going well. I'm not going to succumb to giving these bottles. These babies just like to suck. I'm just going to give a pacifier. And so they kind of use that as an external reference if they feel like they don't really trust their baby's cues. Um, but, uh, you know, the thing about teaching residents, I'll tell you, you know, they, they grow out of the NICU. The NICU, everything's about measuring calorie intake and volume intake. So but, then, but then look, what I say to them, look, when you see a three-year-old for a well-child exam, you're not going to have the parents come in with a list of everything the child ate for the last two weeks and do a calorie count on the kid, right? No. 
you're just trying to get somebody to do that. Right. Oh my gosh. Right, exactly. Even for a day, it's impossible. So, right. And so we don't do that to three-year-olds. Well, once they're healthy, once, once they've sort of flown the NICU nest, we don't need to do that anymore. We can just trust their judgment unless, of course, they're preemies. Preemie NICU graduates who are still very young. Yes, we do watch them carefully. But, um, but even then, you know, once they leave the NICU, they don't, they almost never need fortified breast milk. All they need to do is increase the volume, let them go. Just let them feed according to their appetites and they'll do fine. And yeah, yeah. That's true. It reminds me of some of the data that came out of some NICU study, even NICU babies, where they fortified the milk to higher calories and the babies took less volume. They yeah, regulated the they regulated. Yeah, and then they, yeah, well, I can go on and on about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so the article talked about how we can basically, like I said, use the information based on expected volumes and do some rough calculations to determine the amount of carbohydrates each child is getting at each feeding. Now, this like I said, doesn't always work for infants who have small volume, um, frequent feedings rather than having more discrete meals. And in that situation, they say it may be more practical to measure the infant's glucose every three hours and give insulin for correction of blood glucose levels without measuring the infant carbohydrate intake. Mm -hmm. Um, Another strategy does involve using pre and post feed weights, but of course this is not a practical strategy for everyday life. Most families don't have access to that sort of sensitive skill and they would drive themselves nuts if they oh, were constantly yeah. the baby. But they did point out that it could be useful every two to three months when the baby comes for well checks to do a um, pre and post feed um, or to do a 24 hour um, volume check every few months if the mom wanted to get a better idea of how much volume um, she was providing in 24 hours. And finally, it could be a strategy in the hospital following stabilization after initial diagnosis to to get an idea of how much um, babies are taking. Um, But most importantly, every effort should be made by the medical team to give the parents a message of support and acceptance that breastfeeding is the optimal form of nutrition for the infant. And for the toddler, and I think this is a bigger issue yeah. for toddlers because I think that, you know, when a when a when a fourteen month old or a sixteen month old is nursing, I think that's where doctors are like, really, still nursing? Like, what's that about? And that's where parents start to hide that they're nursing their toddlers, and they don't feel as supported in our society, at least. And so I think that this is an important protocol to explain to endocrinologists that it's not the 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 goal is not to have them wean. I mean, my gosh, we need the, all the protective and immunological maturation bioactive factors as much as possible, you know, and yeah, toddlers absolutely. are, yeah, we don't want them to get RSV or pneumonia or, you know, mm-hmm. when no, the infections, you. yeah. So it does then go into a little bit on insulin pumps um, as well as solid foods. Um, it talks about the impact of hypo and hyperglycemia. And because hypoglycemia has um, a significant impact on um, the brain during this critical time for growth and brain development in young children, I think people tend to try to err on the side of hyperglycemia. And the consequences of that are, um, have, suggest that there is Sorry, there's evidence to suggest that the progression toward uh, microvascular complications um, that are the result of 
hyperglycemia occur more at the onset of puberty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having slightly higher glucose at this age isn't as big a deal as it is later. And that's part of the other reason that people tend to sort of err in that direction in young children. Although there are some studies that show that having good glycemic control, even during the first few years after diagnosis of diabetes is associated with a delay in microvascular complications, particularly diabetic retinopathy. Hmm. Interesting. Finally, um, they go into some recommendations for future research which um, one of the ones that I think is really important that probably um, once this protocol gets the right people is a change that could be made without too much difficulty is um, to track in the longitudinal databases breastfeeding rates um, to monitor outcomes for infants and toddlers with diabetes. So the existing databases like the T1D exchange registry, which is one of the really big um, registries of children with type 1 diabetes, um, as far as the authors know, is not currently recording information on feeding method. And that would be really important for um, doing future research. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. I think also looking at long-term complications of diabetes in type 1 diabetics and insulin, in, in, uh, infants using insulin, um, to see whether or not breastfeeding had some sort of effect long-term on their risk of complications. Yeah, that's why they need that in that, in that database so that they can then help to sort that out in the future. Right, right. Good. No, I'm really, I was really excited to see that. Yeah, uh, I applaud the authors. Way yes. to go, guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's what we're all about. So, okay, so I'm going to talk about um, an article, just a short report, entitled Human Milk Oligosaccharides and Development of Cow's Milk Allergy. And this was by a few authors, um, Auntie Seppo, Chloe Autran, Lars Bodie, and Christy Jarvinum. And it was in the Journal of Allergy and Immunology in October of 2016. And so the idea is that human milk oligosaccharides, which are those non-absorbable sugars in breast milk, provide food for healthy uh, the healthy bacteria in infants' guts. So it promotes the growth of the healthier bacteria, which are considered to be the bifidobacteria, and it also provides some support for bacteroides. Um, the oligosaccharides between women have now been shown to be different, and it depends on women's genetics. So people, so um, my oligosaccharide profile would look different than your oligosaccharide profile. And maybe that'll, maybe someday that'll be like our fingerprint for the future, <laughs> if we hope. Um, <laughs> so um, what they found is that some women lack certain enzymes in their breast milk um, or in their bodies in general to make certain oligosaccharides in their breast milk. And, they, and some women actually have difficulty supporting that healthy microbiota in their infant's gut, which is quite interesting. And they find that, that these human milk oligosaccharides, depending on the balance, can actually even help prevent transmission of HIV from the mother to the child. And in some cases, um, help wow. to reduce the risk of eczema in children who are born via C-section. So now it appears that infants who are born via C-section who don't develop the same microbiome, um, you know, have a higher risk of eczema. But breastfeeding helps to ameliorate that to some degree. And then with certain human milk oligosaccharides, they even have a lower risk of eczema despite being born via C-section. Um, 
so so basically what this what all these studies are showing is that the human milk allosaccharides not only um, help to promote that healthy bacteria in the infant gut they not only um, serve as what we call decoys you know where bacteria in the gut attach to them instead of the lining of the gut um, and then the so the idea with oligosaccharides is that uh, they they look like the lining of the intestine, so the germs will mm. attach to those, and then the infants poop out the oligosaccharides and bye bye germs at the same time. It's kind of like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's kind of like Noah's Ark. Like, let's grab all the germs and take it down, you know, out to sea kind of thing. Um, but also now they're showing how this, how the human milk oligosaccharides also play a role in. Um, in uh, allergy and other um, immuno, like immunomodulation. And that bacteria plays a very important role in how, how infants uh, react or how they express allergy, um, how, they, um, how they show certain food sensitivities as well. So not just IgE allergy, but also just in terms of their sensitivities. So these authors wanted to look at the differences in the human milk oligosaccharides in infants who were known to have cow's milk allergy and those um, who didn't. So they took 41 mothers of infants who didn't have cow's milk allergy and 39 mothers of in infants with cow's milk allergy. And they took the milk samples um, in the first one to two months postpartum. And they basically found that there was one specific type of human milk oligosaccharide called LNFP3 that differs between the two groups. Um, and there seems to be an antigen on the human milk oligosaccharide that protects from cow's milk allergy. So I thought that was really interesting because they looked at a lot of different human milk oligosaccharides and they found that one that was like distinctly very different. Um, but they also acknowledge that there have been some other studies looking at the role of cytokines and looking at the role of antibodies in breast milk and how that also plays a role in whether or not a child is going to have cow's milk allergy. So the story is not, you know, it's just a work in progress, but I think these oligosaccharides are a pretty sweet deal. And everyone should have them. Everyone. When you said it's going to be like your fingerprint, I was like, oh, how long until I can get my oligosaccharides <laughs> analyzed to find out how they affected my two C-sectioned exemptive <laughs> children? <laughs> well, I think you're going to have to relactate. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Sorry about that. The things people do for their own research, though. Exactly. That's true. That's really true. All right. Well, that's good. I think we um, I think we'll call it a day and um, I'll be talking to you again soon. Awesome. All right. Take care, Karen. Talk to you later. Bye. For Bye. questions regarding this podcast, contact us through themilkmob.org. We have other educational projects going on there, such as the Clinical Question of the Week and our Outpatient Breastfeeding Champion programs. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Facebook page, where you can also share comments and questions with your co-listeners. To learn more about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, please visit www.bfmed.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you in a few weeks.